don't let pilots be sleep deprived. At the end of eight hours, they have to have sleep. This was not a fully trained doctor working in this place and did not meet their expectations. And on top of it, the diagnosis got missed. You can't have one person fighting with one crazy. Hey, Rick Picotta, Greg Henry, the March 2019 Risk Management Monthly coming to you. Greg's in beautiful Ann Arbor. I'm in Los Angeles. We're about to kick off an issue. Now, I must admit, Greg, we usually try to get ahead on these. We're doing the March uh, recording on March 7th, which is not good. But Yes, I understand. And I, I take full responsibility for this, full responsibility. This isn't a problem, Rick. you got to understand, here in Michigan, we're still warming up. Uh, I uh, unloaded my rifle, which we use to shoot polar bear uh, when they're when they're grazing across the land. But uh, uh, spring, they tell us, is going to come. We're looking forward to it. I know you've had a lot of rain in California, and actually, my understanding is that's a good thing. You don't have to fill up those reservoirs and all that kind of stuff. Oh, the swimming pools. We need the we need the pools filled. <laughs> You yeah. know, it has been absolutely wet here, and we love it. We are so in need. Uh, but this is not going to restore all the reservoirs, all the groundwater. You know, the, we're going to say, oh, the drought's over. It's not over. But Yeah, yeah. It, it, funny. It, humans have about a the attention span of a gnat on any of these issues. If it rains for two weeks, then all of a sudden there's no water problem in California. Exactly. Again. Yeah. All right. So I'm starting out today with a historical note. Uh, this is the date in 1857 when Justice Tawney, who had to be the most uh, uh, difficult man to ever hold the Supreme Court uh, position as uh, Chief Justice, released the Dred Scott decision. And for those of you who don't remember Dred Scott, you should. Um, Dred Scott was the, uh, servant of an army doctor. The army doctor had been shipped around the country and two of the states he'd been shipped to didn't have slavery. Well, while he was in, uh, Minnesota and, uh, Missouri, he went ahead and sued for his release uh, and this case went on for like 11 or 12 years. He'd already been removed back to the South. And he said, you know, up there I was a free guy, and here I'm not. And he doesn't think that's right. So uh, the Supreme Court, except for one guy, uh, said, nah, black people are property, not citizens. This was 1857. This one case set the stage for the Civil War in four years. Everybody and his uncle at that time commented on this, including some no-known uh, uh, no guy from Illinois named Abraham Lincoln. And so to some extent, the reason we have him on the $5 bill is uh, he went ahead and said bad things about this Dred Scott decision. So there you go, Rick. Just a little historical comment. I, I didn't know that you are just uh, so full of these um, little pearls, little yeah. pearls. You know, you're, yeah. you're, um, you you have such a broad 
interested in just about everything out there. Hey, listen. Well, my wife says I actually have the greatest collection of useless knowledge <laughs> she's ever seen in her entire life. But uh, I thought this is in some way related to uh, medic, uh, legal stuff anyway. So we ought to comment on it. There well, you listen, go. I want to do a paper uh, that I've never seen on this topic ever, ever, never, ever. But I've often thought about it, and, and I'll tell you, in association with what in a bit later. Anyway, it's entitled Acute Sleep Deprivation and Culpable Motor Vehicle Crashes. Catch that? Culpable Motor Vehicle Crashes linked to depri sleep deprivation. With the emphasis on the word culpable. Yes, exactly. This was uh, published in the journal called Sleep, the October uh, 2018 issue. It's from the AAA Foundation, the American Automobile Association Foundation for Traffic Safety. In the preamble, this is a study, but in the preamble of the study, they point out that it's estimated that 7% of all motor vehicle crashes in the United States and 16% of the fatal ones involved driver drowsiness. They point out that the National Transportation Safety Board has identified fatigue as a probable cause, a contributing factor, or a finding in 40% of all major accident investigations that they do. And, you know, they're investigating the big guy accidents, not our little fender benders. Right, exactly. The, those was somebody died. And, Rick, you can't separate out somebody who's a little tired and then maybe had one drink. I mean, the two of them have to be additive. I mean, what is not to understand here? You go home, you're tired, you have a couple of drinks, bang, you fall asleep. Well, we're, we're going to get to that. Uh, but yes, the focus here now is on culpability, culpability. Right. One study cited that examined uh, simulated driver performance. They found that driver's variability in speed and lane changing were impaired after 21 hours of continuous wakefulness. Impaired to the degree, the degree that it was the same as being um, involved with a blood alcohol concentration of 0 0.8. They basically say, you are drunk driving if you have 21 hours of sleep or less. Now, obviously, this is connected to emergency medicine. It's also connected to doctors and training because oftentimes they had to work all day all night, and they'll work part of the next day. They had 36-hour shifts. Now, I think that that is going the way of the dodo bird, but being up 24 hours is not going the way of the dodo bird, I don't think. Rick, that has gone away. The residents now come in about 10, work till about noon, take two hours for lunch, come back, and by 5, they're gone. So uh, you remember you remember the days of wooden ships and iron men and and tough residents. That's all gone now. I, I wouldn't all right. worry well, about uh, Okay. But it's not gone in people who work in community emergency departments. No, it's not. That's what we're talking about here. So this is, I want to tell you about the study that they did. They looked at 6,845 drivers involved in a representative sample of crashes investigated by the U.S. Department of Transportation between 2005 and 2007. They looked at the dry, uh, cases where people had been had normal amounts of sleep and compared them with people who had uh, variable degrees of less sleep. Specifically, 
they looked at drivers who reported. Now, the drivers self-reported how much sleep they had. Now, you have to be an idiot if you were involved in a traffic accident that I have no sleep. I've not slept. But anyway, this this is self-reported. They had drivers who had slept six, five, four, and less than four hours in the prior 24 hours before the crash that they had. The odds ratio for them to be uh, culpable for these crashes were 1.3, 1.9 times, 2.9 times. But catch this, less than four hours, you're 15 times more likely to be culpable for your accident. Drivers who slept less than four hours had 3.4 times the increase in culpable involvement in single vehicle crashes. That's where you drive your car into the, a bridge abutment because you fell asleep. Right. Um, so this is the first study peer-reviewed to quantify a dose-response relationship between driver sleep in the past 24 hours and the risk of causing a motor vehicle accident. Uh a panel of experts, actually, from the National Sleep Foundation in 19, 2015 concluded, catch this, as a quote, drivers who have slept for two hours or less in the preceding 24 hours are not fit to operate a motor vehicle accident. They say now, based on the study above, it's, it's not just two hours, it's four hours or less are yes. not fit to be driving a motor vehicle. Now, how many emergency physicians out there do you know and frankly, even if they worked the night shift, they were probably up during the day. If, you know, they might have gotten a little nap at best or, or maybe nothing. And they go in and do a night shift. They feel like crap in the morning. How many doctors do you know who have fallen asleep driving home? Yeah. Well, uh, you know at least one. You're talking to him. I had some guy blowing his horn behind me. I stopped and I stopped. <laughs> Took a little nap. And, he's blowing, and then I, I just shook my head and I realized... I'd nod it off on the way home. That's not a good thing, Rick. It's just it's just not. And it's something I wouldn't have done if I'd been drinking. I'd have just, I'd have just slept it off. But no, I got in the car and said, you know, I can get home. Not a problem. 15 minutes. And uh, it, it, there was no accident. But, you know, it taught me a lesson. And uh, I, I've tried not to do that. Well, you know, prior to my getting my sleep apnea device. You I, don't have to tell me this story, but go <laughs> ahead. <laughs> I, used to, I used to routinely, you know, if, if the road was going straight and I held the wheel straight, I could take a 15-minute nap if it was going straight. It was those turns in the road that threw me off. Yeah, we call, we call that Wyoming, Rick. <laughs> Uh, you can, you can do that in Wyoming. You can't do that on the 401 in California. No, the, actually. The 101. Yeah. So anyway, uh, when you be alert, frankly, if lawyers see this, if lawyers see this, and if you're involved in a crash and it's a substantial crash, because there's a lot of monetary issues or uh, injuries, they're going to come after you because in fact, you have elected this is not something that was forced upon you. You have elected to be sleep deprived. You have elected to become culpable in your motor vehicle uh, uh, collisions. This entire question's coming up here in, in Michigan because we've legalized marijuana. But that doesn't mean people aren't going to combine it with other medications, that people who are sleep deprived are not going to drive 
and they're asking the wrong set of questions. They say, do we have a good test for the uh, the actual quantitative amount of marijuana? It's not good yet. You know that, Rick. We don't have a convenient number to throw out. But geez, Louise, let's just ask ourselves some questions here. When, when, they're, when they're staggering and they're falling back to sleep while you're talking to them, you know what? That's impairment. We need to come up with new ways of deciding impairment. Um, and uh, the, the marijuana question is not settled here as far as oh, no. who what should be driving. Yeah, I think that that's true. And I think was, I think the bottom line is however you become impaired may be irrelevant. It could be alcohol. It could be marijuana. It could be sleep deprivation. The bottom could line be age. is you, could be age. Now, Grandma, I, w- I, I wouldn't go there, Chief. What? I wouldn't go to the age thing. Yeah, I know we shouldn't <laughs> be going to that, Rick, but that fight's going to come up here this year in the state of Michigan in the legislature as to what we do with people uh, who are, they're very, you know, Grandma's nice. She hasn't caused any accidents, but she now comes in to get her license and she is 92. I mean, are we going to make them take the driving test again? Do they have to take the written again, the vision test again? This isn't going to go away, Rick, because the number of older people who are driving isn't going down. It's going up. And God forbid you're old and you're not sleeping and you had a little toot on top of it. Uh, yes, you're really exactly. in a mess. Okay, yeah, so listen, be alert out there that um, you should not put yourself in a position where you are culpable for these accidents. All right, moving on, Greg. You want to do this next paper? Yeah, yeah. We. Uh, I, I don't want to skip this one only because I, I think this is some reasonable stuff here. Uh, some stuff. Every night in an emergency department, every night, every day, Uh, you're going to have somebody who you've had to wake up with Narcan or they've been mostly what we see are people who in the field, the EMTs have given a whopping dose of Narcan to when they should have just given them a hint, a whisper enough to make them breathe. Now they're in there. Now they're uh, alert, kicking, want to get out of there. When can you let that person out safely from your emergency department? That's the question here. I mean, nobody, each one of us has seen somebody bust the way out the doors. Ten minutes later, we find him again in the hallway of the hospital because their original Narcan is worn off. But the real question is, when can you let people go? And this study, and let's let's comment on it here, a prospective clinical uh, uh, rule validation study, uh, uh, it, which was in Academic Emergency Medicine, December 28, 2018, they got to come up with a set of rules as to when you're going to let these people go and they're going to be reasonably sa- uh, safe. Now, this study actually comes from Vancouver. The last time I checked, that's still in Canada. Uh, and so there may be other, some, uh, perhaps some other legal restriction here. But they came with early discharge rules. The Canadians always come up with rules. You know, the Ottawa ankle rules, the Vancouver discharge rules. They have six criteria. 
regarding discharge at one hour. If the patient uh, is back to normal, if they have a normal pulse ox, normal respiration rate, normal temperature, normal heart rate, and a normal Glasgow coma scale, when they look back, there were only, in of the 538 patients they looked at, there were only a few, I think it's 13 patients, who would in some way not fit into this rule. And when you look back, these people all required uh, additional naloxone supplemental oxygen and IV fluids. So it sounds, Rick, like if you have somebody who's kicked around for an hour and you can always keep people for an hour, you can send them to x-ray for no x-ray at all. Exactly. And then they send back. That's it. Well, you know, the hospital, if they get good insurance, you might want to do a CAT scan on something. We do a CAT scan on something. Yeah, But that'll tie it up for an hour. But what they say is... If they don't, if you haven't had to give them multiple hits of uh, Narcan, really, they're probably safe to go home. What do you think? Well, this, we is, get- this thing is called the St. Paul's Early Discharge Rule. And I suggest you take a look at it. Uh, it's in a very easily accessible journey, uh, journal for emergency physicians, or ac- academic emergency medicine. And um, because I think one of the concerns is is that, well, geez, you know, they're taking this fentanyl and all this really bad stuff, and, and after you wake them up, well, the fact is that fentanyl is per- extraordinarily potent, but it's also extraordinarily short-acting. Short-acting, and absolutely. And the fact of the matter is is that once they're wake, awoke and they've been around for an hour or they're, you know, on most ERs, you can't get registered in an hour. So the idea here is, you know, many places hold the people as a matter of policy, like four hours and something like that, and it's just not supportable by at least at least the, the analysis by these folks. So I suggest that you take a look at this. If you want to get some protocols that kind of help you when, decide when to discharge them, because otherwise you're going to be holding them longer than you need to. Right. Uh, I think then, that I I think we can feel comfortable. We've now got some support that says you're going to turn them over to their grandmother or whoever came in. Who's safe? Who's going to go home and crash? Who's going to have other problems? And it sounds like if you go through those six criteria, you you should be medically, legally, and ethically and morally pretty safe here. Now, what you can't stop is somebody who goes out and uses more drugs. Right. And I, I've certainly seen that problem a bunch of times. But um, I think I think this is a good study to have in the literature that says there are some reasonable criteria in which you're going to let people go home. Greg, why don't you do the next one? This is about uh, resident physician liability. This is published by Wendy Wu in, of all places, Clinical Orthopedics and Related Research back in June of... Uh, 2017, but we're always interested in this issue of residents and getting sued and uh, their their supervisors and their involvement, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, I, they 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 really searched for these articles, Rick. I think uh, they have a total of 52, but there's a lot of old data oh, in no, here. No, no, uh, Greg, I'm talking about the one above. It's called Medical Legal Sidebar. Uh, it's on page. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. No, I got that one. Yeah. This is the uh, and and 
uh, I don't know exactly why this should be in an orthopedic uh, uh, journal uh, as opposed to anything else, but uh, they looked at the mistakes caused by residents. Here's the long and short of this one, Rick. Uh, there are principles we need to follow. There's a reason why you're a resident and not a dock out on a staff physician because you haven't finished the training. Now, this argument has been said, I don't know, since probably the time of, of, of uh, Hipp uh, Hippocrates. But, well, if we don't let them do things on their own, how are they going to learn? Well, we don't believe that with the training of airline pilots. They have to do it with other pilots for a long time. And they have to go in and be rechecked at intervals to make sure they can do it. It's funny. We just talked about sleep deprivation. We don't let pilots be sleep deprived. They have to, at the end of eight hours, they have to have sleep. Why do we think that residents don't need any supervision? And, and you can still let them do things, but you ought to be standing around. And I think there are three practical principles from this paper. The first one is teaching centers ought to have rules allowing residents to practice up to their level of training, but no further. No surgery resident year one or two does a Whipple's procedure by himself. They don't do it. Why do we think that, that uh, other things can be done that way? So there ought to be a level and mandating uh, and something that mandates how much supervision they need. The resident must be aware of his or her knowledge base and skill limitations and know that they shouldn't be doing it by themselves. And then teaching physicians actually have to show up. You know, you and I were from the era when uh, a lot of senior residents took things to the operating room and, and uh, attending signed the operative reports later. None of that's allowed anymore. And we, we shouldn't use it in emergency medicine or anywhere else. I think that there's no question that the person who has to show up in court is the one whose license number, uh, medical license, appears on the bill. And uh, it, you better be willing to stand there and tell the jury that, that you didn't supervise the resident. Yeah, we're going to do a case later on involving uh, a resident, in this case, a resident who was uh, moonlighting. You know, yeah. uh, I want to make sure that everybody understands that we do not miss any articles relating to risk management in emergency medicine. There's a paper was that entitled uh, Malpractice in Emergency Medicine, a Review of Risk and Mitigation Practices for the Emergency Medicine Provider. I thought, wow, look at this title. This is going to be right down our alley. This was published in the uh, Journal of Emergency Medicine, back in uh, 2018, and I went through it, and honest to goodness, they looked at all of these articles, they found 28 articles, and they added a bunch of their own, they found 52 papers that they were going to summarize and give us the secret sauce of not getting uh, sued. Unfortunately, most of the data in this review is extraordinarily old. They were citing papers, Greg, 1988. 1991, 2005, some of the studies were not in the U.S. It was like, oh, my God, 
I concluded that there was nothing in this paper that we didn't know. And they did cite one paper from 2018, which we did review. So unfortunately, what I thought was going to be the gold mine turned out to be some false gold. Yeah, yeah, I, the, that's too bad. But we're on top of it for all you readers so, uh, and listeners. So don't get don't get out there and think you got to find that article because you don't. Hey, Greg, did all you right. see this case? I, I, this made the news. This case that you're going to do now. It was big. It was big here in Michigan. It was on. Uh, th- this was on the news. You know, uh, the story at six, film at eleven, <laughs> and this is in the. Uh, Beaumont Emergency Department, and, th- and there was a guy who had been a troublemaker at that emergency department for years. They knew him. Now, he was out, and they have wonderful uh, footage on this. They've got some poor gal who is wearing a hajib, a Muslim uh, garment around her head, And uh, he comes up and starts wailing the daylights out of her. He had just been seen back in the department. They put him out there, I think, awaiting a ride or something. And he goes ahead and attacks this woman. It's very graphic film, Rick. And and, uh, uh, the Detroit area, all all stations uh, were carrying this thing. And the largest... Muslim population in America, you know, is outside of the Middle East, is here in Dearborn, Michigan. So this is a big issue here. And, uh, you know, every plaintiff's attorney and his uncle is jumping on top of this one. How come they let this guy go? How come there wasn't somebody sitting with him? Um, it's a problem. It's, it, this guy well, is a definite problem. Yeah, I did see this uh video and this attack happened so instantaneously it from did. This, this person had a history of schizophrenia bipolar you name it throwing all the diagnoses he had been seen was put back at, out in, in, in the waiting room and he just out of the blue attacked this lady and how anybody could have you know stopped this thing or prevented this thing it's just impossible impossible yeah so, I, I, I listen it was debated here up and down the line. And the bottom line is there's only so much you can do to prevent people who are who have mental health problems from causing problems because there's the constant battle between how much you restrain, how much you do this and that, and, and you know, what you can do with these people. It was a very big uh, very big thing here. Let me point out, however, there are patients, and if you ever had to answer these questions in court, doctor, did you know or did you have some fears that this person might be dangerous to the other people sitting in the waiting room? Couldn't you have had them, uh, one of the guards sit with them until they were picked up, yada, yada, yada. Just be careful because there are known bad actors and and I've had several docs who had their careers shortened uh, from attacks from psychiatric patients. I had one doc who had a brachial plexus injury that essentially ruined their career. Um, this 
this is not a totally safe business, Rick. Oh, no, I, I, I get that. I don't know that uh, this this could really have been prevented because it only takes about two or three rapid punches uh, that were basically instantaneous, and uh, you've got a problem on your hands. Yeah, you do. Uh, I want to do a paper related to one of my favorite drugs, the fluoroquinolones. You know, I've been, <laughs> I've been bashing these now since... Uh, Oh, I think it was uh, maybe two years ago, the uh, admonition by the FDA that these drugs not be used for uh, UTIs, bronchitis, and sinusitis because they were causing a bunch of neurologic effects. Half the effects were neurologic, the other half were psychiatric. Uh, And now they came out with uh, December 10th, 2018, a warning regarding fluoroquinolones and tears of the aorta, uh, aortic rupture. And it's interesting because Jim Roberts just did a, his, one of his columns in Emergency Medicine News on this uh, phenomenon. We know about the idea that fluoroquinolones and, and connective tissues and tendons and things like that, well, it's not limited to the Achilles, you know. <laughs> this drug doesn't right. have doesn't have the brain to go, okay, we're only going to go to the Achilles. That's where we specialize. As opposed to other connective tissues in the body, Exactly, exactly. Now, in all fairness, Rick, before we get on this tirade, for the last 40 years, you and I did pass out Cipro. We passed out this. We passed out that. Uh, What are we going to do now? We didn't think about this much until this kind of literature was starting to be developed. There's nobody listening to this broadcast who hadn't given out Cipro at some time for urinary tract infections. Right, sure. And I think most people have got along just fine. But there is a growing realization that there's this spectrum of psycho, a psychiatric and neurologic conditions that can, plus the connective tissue-related things that are a problem. As an example, you know, if you were taking this drug and for some kind of an infection, and you found that you really, I just can't sleep. I can't, you would never tell your doctor, you know, I can't sleep, uh, when in fact, the doctor would never have connected an antibiotic to I can't sleep. But that might have been one of the beginnings of a, or, or the manifestations of a psychiatric kind of effect from this drug. Well, now we're talking about some serious business. We're talking about aortic dissections. Also, now that was in December, in July uh, of um, 2008, they came out with this thing about hypoglycemia. Right. Uh, resulting in coma occurring more frequently in the elderly and those with diabetes <laughs> taking oral hypoglycemic medicines or insulin. Well, nobody's taking insulin anymore because you can't afford it. Yeah, right. Yeah. So that, you don't have to worry about that. They... And they reiterated. We, we got to end on time today, Rick, because I got to go rob a bank because <laughs> I got to take two more shots of insulin today. Well, you know, you're supposed to uh, lower the dose, you know, kind of thing. You know, so split, right. the, split the pills and all that other. This this July 10th FDA pronouncement also reiterated this business about um, fluoroquinolones for the. Bacterial sinusitis, UTIs, and um, what else? The third thing here, um, and uh, sinusitis. 
uh, an exacerbation of chronic bronchitis. Pardon me. So those are the three. Why they said uh, don't use it in these three, but you can use it in other stuff is it makes no sense. They basically say over and over and over again, use this drug if there's unless there's an alternative drug. Well, we know we have tons of alternative drugs. Well, I think th- I think that's the point we're passing along. Everybody's uh, information is now on the street. The FDA has commented on this a bunch of times. If I were you running an emergency department, uh, do an audit of your antibiotics whenever anybody has these four or five diagnoses. If someone's still giving out fluoroquinolones, I'd have a cup of coffee conversation with them and say, you know, there are lawsuits about this. Uh, And I I think there's no reason for the emergency physician to take that liability on when there are other drugs available. Right. Amoxicillin clavulanate is usually considered to be a good substitute for the fluoroquinolones, at least in the stuff that we uh, treat. So, yeah, I agree 100%. If you give this stuff out and somebody's harmed, they're going to say, well, doctor, did you know about it? Well, these are black box kind of things. Why didn't you know about it? I believe that a lot of physicians are not aware of this and they ought not be giving out these drugs because there are are reasonable alternatives. If you're going to use one of these drugs, and they're very common. I mean, we've given them out for years. Think about doing this calling up the specialist on call in that field and say, I need another drug. Which one would you suggest? And and get somebody to back you up here on a change of drug, because I'll promise you, you pull the textbooks down, uh, bring them up online, these drugs are still suggested in those areas. Oh, right? absolutely. The, the, For uh, some of these areas. The guidelines uh, are way behind on the use of this drug. Way behind. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's move on, Greg. Uh, this is a story out of Politico, January 30th, oh, yes. 2019. So it's a very hot article. Yeah, this is a very hot article. And the reason is uh, here the, the subpoenas issued for ordering the wrong scans. Now, <laughs> that's a new one. Yeah, I mean, for ordering the wrong scans, at least four unnamed emergency docs at Rhode Island Hospital. I know that hospital. It's the only big hospital in Rhode Island, by the way, Rick. I don't know whether you knew that or not. It's probably the only hospital in Rhode Island. Well, it's not. There's actually like uh, 28 of them, something, yeah. But uh, served as subpoenas, charging them with incorrectly ordering imaging studies. Scans were ordered on the wrong side of the body, and one study was on the wrong patient. Now, you're just a liar if you're out there, and and you can't. And you say, "Well, I've never ordered it." Everybody in this audience has somebody has gotten the wrong medication or gotten the wrong study. It does happen, but apparently, there were errors the physicians reported. And which they can, um, which were picked up, attributed to the CPOE system. Right, these and, guys are, uh, turned themselves in to the yeah. hospital with the with the idea of showing that this CPOE system was 
such that it was very, very easy to make wrong-sided or even wrong patient orders. And so right. they're trying to kind of get things cleared up because in showing the people the uh, the problems, and somehow the state, I guess, gets a hold of this stuff, and they're they're getting subpoenaed for being bad boys and girls. Let's let's quote from the Department of Health, which says they're incompetent, uh, negligent, willful misconduct in the practice of medicine. You know, I think it's interesting that when you try and do the right thing, now somebody's all over you. Uh, Nobody here, by the way, said anybody died because this was done. What they've said here is the wrong study was actually done. And, uh, you know, when we turn ourselves in, it's really not reinforcing good behavior when the state brings an action against you. It's just not right, Rick. Yeah, that was the thrust of the responses of the emergency medicine community is like, this is, we're trying to do the right thing here, and now you're kind of beating us up. You're basically. Well, the other quote was we will be ordering hearings into the physician's activities forthwith. Oh, my God. Rendering of of medically unnecessary services, failure to conform with standards. They just beat these guys up. And uh, they were just trying to get a problem resolved uh, because these systems, it's easy to check the wrong box. Right, left? It is. I have have an email from one of our regular listeners whose name I will not release because I haven't gotten permission for it. But uh, she's up in arms about uh, all of the uh, ele- the uh, various electronic health records. She thinks we ought to be suing uh, some of these uh, systems uh, for being unworkable, unmanageable, and a danger to the life of our patients. Uh, she's she's on a that's, kick. That's about a bit this. of a stretch. Well. What she says is we we've been sold a bill of goods here and that uh, what we're not doing is actually improving the time spent with patients, the this, the that, the other thing. You know, this, this lady, she may be I right. Don't, I don't know what she's smoking. Where where's the legal case here for this? We are, we didn't buy these. Our hospitals bought these. They were willing uh, they were willingly bought for some kind of reasons that uh were sold to them. It's not our choice. Well, what she's saying is we need to sue the hospitals as well for <laughs> purchasing an inadequate product. Now, I don't know whether we're going to get very far with that, but I, I do understand the fact that people are not happy with the number of layers and boxes you've got to check, and they all have to be checked. Till you get to the bottom these, line. These things are the invention of the devil. They, there's no question about that. There are two things that you have to ask of a electronic health record CPOE system. Number one, will it result in better care for the patients? Yeah. And I, you cannot prove that. You cannot prove that. Uh, unless you've got really good uh, this physician support in and for like the uh, rules for auto ankle rules, those kinds of things, unless they're embedded into the system and are not obtrusive but allows you to provide 
better, more consistent care, you can't show that these things provide better or associated with better care, number one. And number two, well, if you can't provide better care, can I provide faster care? And everybody right. knows you cannot provide faster care. So they're 0 for 2 as far as I'm concerned. Right. All right. You want to talk about Chris's uh, email to us? Yeah. Uh, Chris Lesher, who uh, writes to us with some frequency, and I have known I've known Chris for decades. Right. He, he wrote, uh, he, he was sent a letter by a company called the Expert Institute. And uh, in that letter, it said, Dr. Schlesher, uh, here's, a, here's a case that you may be, uh, we're looking for an expert. And they summarized the case and they asked, have you had experiences with patients like this? And if so, uh, can you give us some of your background and would you be willing to be interviewed by a, and a client of ours who's an attorney looking for an expert? And uh, I went, I looked at their website, and I thought, you know, actually, although most malpractice attorneys have a stable of people that they use who they know are good and who are good on the stand and, and deliver the goods, uh, I'm sure there are uh, attorneys out there who are looking for experts who don't have an expert in this disorder or something like that. And so the idea here is to match up attorneys and doctors. And I thought actually it was kind of an interesting thing. I had not seen it before. I, I went onto their website. They basically say that we have dealt with 4,000 law firms and have been involved with 30,000 cases. Have you ever heard of this company, Greg, or this process? Yes. Uh, not only have I heard of it, I get calls from plenty of other companies who want to find experts for attorneys, and then they take their 10% off the top. Um, here's what you don't want to do as a physician. You never want to be known as an advertising physician. If they contact you, it's probably all right. If you're contacting them, uh, going out and uh, contacting law firms looking for work, that is discoverable. And I've seen doctors ask that question right on the stand. Doctor, are you an advertising physician? Isn't it true you've called the following 52 law firms looking for work? Isn't it true, doctor, if you were a true expert in the field, you wouldn't have to do that. They would be seeking you out for your expertise. So just be careful. Well, um, the, you know, it's kind of interesting because you were asked in an email about uh, uh, somebody who was interested in getting into doing malpractice work. And right. you had a phone call with them. And I don't know what you basically said because it was offline, but I... Um, I would be curious as to what you said. Well, what I actually said was uh, the way you get it, it, get known, is you give talks. You have areas of expertise. You can, if you want to work with doctors who you know are already doing cases, and I've done this. I've mentored a half a dozen physicians, let them work with me on some of these cases, and then when I get called... I've actually passed their name along uh, as someone who could do this. Do I you, mean, I get, do you have I get your, five of those calls a, a week. Do you have a normal uh, 
referral referral fee? No, I do not, sir. <laughs> and, and I've been asked that in court as well. <laughs> well, listen, uh, I I don't think that this what this company is doing is a bad thing. I mean, they're they're seeking out people who are experts, and they're going to vet those experts uh, to see whether they're. Uh, going to be a good fit for these cases in the situation where attorneys don't have access to the people they're looking for. So I don't I don't think it's anything bad. I haven't done the study, but 95% of these people will be for plaintiffs, not defense. Oh, and I'm sure that's true. I'm sure that's the true. The defense has big firms, work for insurance companies. They're tied into the medical community, and they have access to find good experts. I, th- I think for the plaintiffs, it is tougher to find oh, absolutely. excellent experts. Greg, tell us about this uh, uh, email regarding violent patients. Um, violent patients, we had, a <clears throat> we had a listener in the great state of Tennessee who writes asking, are two cents worth about hospital security when hospital security is unwilling to help? Stop. You got to stop right now because if you know hospital security is unwilling to help, what are those people for? I, I mean, first of all, most of them are arthritic. They use a cane to wander around. But the bottom line is when there's difficulty in the department, you need to sit down with the hospital and have the rules laid out. Because here's here are the things that I always point out. If you're not going to hit them, who is? I was always lucky that in the hospitals I worked at, I had a great relationship with the local police. And they seem to help out pretty well. But these days, even the local police are getting slow about this. I don't invent this on the scene. Have a protocol, what you do, who you call, uh, because I know hospitals always say the same thing. We'll get sued. We'll get this shit. You know what? At least get sued for something right. Um, and, and will it happen? Could it happen? Sure. But somebody is going to have to take down violent patients. Now, I've been involved with that a lot of times where I was one of the four or five people um, strapping someone down or giving them the hell doll or whatever happened. But somebody's got to do something about it because I promise you this, if that patient hurts other patients, runs around, smacks somebody else, uh, if you don't think the hospital isn't going to get sued for failure to act, you're just plain wrong. And I've been on a bunch of those cases. And the hospital, if if they've got something that says, well, we're not supposed to touch people, we stand back, you're going to be in trouble. We expect somebody to protect the rest of the patients, the staff, everyone else. Yeah, that's why there is a security guard or guards in the hospital. Right. Uh, and yet... Sure, it would be great to see if you could de-escalate these issues. And there's all kinds of tricks and tools about how you do that. And, and I think that this should be in the armamentarium of most emergency physicians in terms of talking down. Or And there's a whole bunch of I, – I, we did a course one time where uh, that was part of it. 
it, it was about what th- things you don't do about you know how getting real close to these people you know uh, you know uh, you know staring at them and, and the, it, there are a bunch of things that will, that will help precipitate a um, physical incidence that you can learn to avoid. But in any case, you're right. When, and when there's trouble, I I back up my nurses. In fact, I stand behind my nurses, uh, <laughs> and that's very important because you can get hurt. Right. So, um, bottom line is, you do need. The hospital does need to have internally some mechanism to deal with patients who are hurting other people or can hurt other people. And it won't, and it can't be the police department. They, you know, they may they may come ten minutes later. You know, it's too late then. You know, in my entire, I had a career of one hundred and forty thousand patients. Um, I hit two people bad, badly, uh, twice. Out of 140,000, it's not every day. But here are some rules. Whenever you're going to uh, strap people down, you you go maximum force, uh, shock and awe, because you can't have one person fighting with one crazy. Uh, no 120-pound no nurse is going to win that fight with a 180-pound a uh, guy full of drugs and alcohol. Uh, in this letter, it's pointed out that the police sent to uh, from the jail, uh, or if to because with this person because of uh, medical clearance, the jail should send adequate personnel that they can handle these people, because in most smaller emergency departments where most of my career was. You don't have a lot of force ready to go. Uh, you know, if you're at some uh, thousand bed hospital and there's 15 security people, uh, that's different than when there's two nurses, a tech and an emergency doc at a 15,000 visit ER. Uh, we depend on on local police to help in those cases, because quite frankly, Hospitals don't have adequate security people. And the last thing I want is one of my nurses hurt or the desk secretary hurt by one of these people. No, there's no question that uh, the police have to be uh, brought into these things, but it would be a good thing because I worked at a single doctor hospital my entire career. And uh, they would round up and people were willing to help, but whether they be the hospital engineers, they had a they had a code that they called when there was something that was precipitating a nasty event, and people would yeah. come from all over the place. And just the fact that you had five people now standing in the doorway of this patient, they're going to start, you know think twice about what they're going to do. This guy's concern was when the police got called, they hauled him off to jail, and there was no medical screening exam done. Uh, in the process, and that's what he was worried about. Well, I I think that there is a medical screening exam done, although limited. You can see them talking. You can see them walking. You can see them moving all four extremities. There, there is. If they take them off, if they take them down. Then you do whatever checking you need to do. But most of those people, the vast majority of them. This isn't some 80-year-old lady. This is some 25-year-old guy full of drugs. Are you going to miss his uh, you know, benign skin cancer or something like that? I have no idea. Well, I think there's another option, frankly. Those patients, you know, 
we sedate patients all the time That's who right. are who are Haldol deficient, so that they can calm calm down, get a little reasonable. You can check them over, and then you've done a decent medical clearance. I think I think that the idea of going to jail is scary when somebody is hauled out of your department. Uh, there are the medical screening issues. In fact, he points out that the police sent a, a form back to the hospital indicating that the patient was medically cleared and they wanted you to sign it. Oh, yeah, yeah right. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, that, do that. That, that's a good one. But um, believe me, there. you know what works in these cases, Rick? Whatever works. And if Haldol works, terrific. Um my entire view of dangerous psych patients in the ER is Haldol and leathers. And if if we need something else, terrific, if you've got a new drug. Uh, but the bottom line here is you've got to keep not only the patient safe, but if you're in charge, if you're the doctor in charge, you have an obligation to keep the hospital staff safe too. Well, yeah, I think and- that oh, this will come down to did you do the best you you could under yeah. the circumstances? I mean, that's that's all that can be asked of you. You know, he brought up another case. <laughs> this is good. They take the yeah. person from your hospital and the police drag him out of your hospital and take him over to the hospital that handles the crazy people, the crazy people hospital. Right. Uh, th- now, this looks like a transfer from one hospital to the other. I don't know that it, that is a EMTALA transfer to a higher level of care. Perhaps it is, honestly. Uh, yep. But there are all these natty situations about how many angels dance on the head or the pin in terms of liability. But fundamentally, you have to protect yourselves, your staff, other patients. And just as we said on that uh, William Beaumont case... Sometimes a situation that looks like nothing turns to stool in a nanosecond. Um, calling security if they're the other end of the building and uh, calling the local police, you know, 10 minutes is a long time oh, when, absolutely. You, when you're getting absolutely. the crap beat out of you. We had, a, and, we had a patient at our single coverage hospital. There were. This was the old days where they didn't really have rooms. They just had curtains between beds. Like somehow they 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 were soundproof curtains, and you know that, that was a I, joke. I had a trauma room like that, where I had four beds uh, for taking care of stuff that wasn't private. Very useful room because I could see people. <laughs> well, in this case, one patient suddenly got up and stabbed the patient in the next bed. I think I've told you about this. This is this is this person was unrelated, and this patient just stabbed the patient in the bed. How could you possibly prevent that? Uh, fortunately, you know, surgery was able to be done on the patient who was stabbed. Fortunately, there was a paramedic in the uh, department delivering another patient who subdued the stabber, and uh, it didn't get as bad as it could have been. That's for sure. Um, they did perform the surgery at no cost uh, <laughs> to the patient. Uh, yeah, well, nice, during nice the hospital to do I, that. I did know. have early on in my career a guy who went crazy running through the department, and you remember the days of glass IV bottles, oh, don't yeah. you? Oh, yeah, yeah. He used that as a weapon, uh, was able to break it over a child, 
who was uh, there and required immediate uh, compression of major bleeding. Um, they, these folks are not easy to handle. And um, that's why I always like the show Wild Kingdom, where they used to bring them down with a gun with a tranquilizer capsule in it. Yeah, uh, how blow dart. Well, the held all blow dart, exactly. Hey, listen, let's do a few cases. Um, all right. Back in June, uh, we reported a $48 million child abuse case against a physician for failure to report. Right. So here's another case. This is from uh, Chuck Pilcher's uh, site. It's a New Jersey case, a two-month-old. Actually, I, uh, I, I saw it listed there, but I independently looked at some of the details in this case. This is a New Jersey case, a two-month-old was brought to the ED by his mother because he wasn't able to straighten out his leg, and he cried when it was touched. A uh, x-ray was taken by the emergency physician. The teleradiologist read the x-ray as normal of the kid's leg, and uh, the kid was discharged. The diagnosis, I'm very curious what the diagnosis was, but it's yeah, yeah. like what he pulled something out of his butt. Uh, in any case, the following morning, the film was overread as a possible fracture. Further imaging was recommended. The family was never advised. A month later, the child returned with seizures and altered mental status, where the, and it was noted that the child had a skull x-ray, intracranial hemorrhage, and healing <clears throat> rib fractures and a right femur fracture. A lawsuit was filed against everyone. The uh, father was convicted and went to jail. And here were the assertions. Um, Is it the father or the mother's boyfriend? No. Because in my experience, it was always the mother's boyfriend. Yeah, well, as far as I know, this is the father. Uh, The follow-up radiologist advised further evaluations, and and, uh, the, the ED says we never got the overread. Everything here is going wrong that can go wrong. The hospital said, all of those doctors, by the way, are contractors, so leave us out of it. And by the way, those contractors uh, did do a good job. Yeah, right. Okay. Right. right. And um, there was a jury verdict. Four-week trial. Four-week trial, Greg. Six hours of deliberation. Uh, How many, what was this, what was the uh, dollar amount in this case, Greg? Well, well, it was less than it was less, less than the forty-eight, four, forty-eight. Million, it was forty-five million dollars. Forty-five right, right. million dollars. Now, the father was responsible for paying sixty percent of the forty-five million. He's going to make, be making license plates in the penitentiary for a long time, uh, but he won't be able to generate sixty percent of forty-five million. The emergency physician who first saw the kid got thirty-five percent. The second emergency physician, I guess, who was sent the x-ray report and said he never got it or something, it was 5%. Uh, and, and how old was the child when this was all settled and done? 12 years old. He's old. It was two months when the, when the femur fracture occurred, and basically it's 12 years old. Now, this kid has uh, you know, neurologic deficits and psychiatric issues from having this brain injury and um now chuck advises and i really really agree that you should look at your own films all the time it should be a matter of practice now i know it's easy to kind of say they're all the radiologists said it's normal but uh i really really think it's it's 
uh, part of your job. You ordered the test. You you can look at the results. You ordered the CBC. You're going to look at the results. You know yeah, what? And, and I think on plain films that may be true, Rick. I'm willing to bet most emergency physicians cannot look at an 80 year old woman's belly uh, okay. MRI. Okay. All right. I got it. Right. I got you, that. You got that. Okay. Right? Yeah, I also that's wanted, why we pay somebody to do this. I also wanted to comment on, um, you know, we talked with Dave Talon a couple of months ago, and one of the issues that came up was kidney stones and cases where patients get septic as a result of infections that they either have or develop. And one mm -hmm. of the things that Dave mentioned is the importance of looking at the UA Right to see whether there was any evidence of infection in a routine stone patient. Uh, if the EOA has any suggestion that it may be consistent with a early infection, that he recommends a low threshold for antibiotics. And uh, Chuck Pilcher had a fellow write in, uh, an emergency medicine faculty member uh, from someplace in Texas, and he has some other recommendations in the same uh, vein regarding kidney stones and possible infections. He said admit diabetics or immunosuppressed stone patients. I, I think that's a I think that's a, a stretch. The vast majority of stone patients do not get infections, don't have infections, and will get early follow up. Uh, he said, and I agree with this: persistent tachycardia after pain control. Check a CBC lactate and renal function. I don't, you know, I'm not going to argue with that for sure. These patients should all have early urology follow-up, uh, and people should be alert to the signs of sepsis. Everybody's looking about sepsis these days. And they basically say, this fellow said, antibiotics for UA is consistent with uh, signs of infection. They said, he said a fluoroquinolone or amoxicillin clavulani. <laughs> so you, that's cross that drug out. Right, um, exactly. So I guess this has kind of done something that I honestly was not aware of. Uh, this idea of developing an infection in association with the kidney stone. Uh, this is something that wasn't really in my kind of wheelhouse. I just this make this connection but dave has gone to enough cases where this is developed that he's saying man you better have a low threshold for looking and treating right and i and i don't disagree with him at all on that but what he what dave didn't say is that everybody has to have a repeat uh, ct scan of their abdomen they're having a stone i i've passed a stone while i was lecturing at one of your courses uh, I did not get a CT scan. I took uh, some uh, Advil and got better. But I, but I honestly do believe that if they're immunologically suppressed, and now everybody's immunologically suppressed, Rick, you cannot see a patient anymore who's not on an UBAB medicine. And Crohn's okay. disease, that uh, psoriasis. Uh headaches, you, you, uh, you name it. They give it for everything. All hey, right. Listen, we, get, uh, we have about 10 minutes left. I oh, like I've to got see if we can get kinds these, of stuff to do here. I'd like to see if we can get these two cases in. The first one's obviously a very quickie, case number one there. This is a um, case here. 
Male patient awoke during the night with their terrible testicular pain, nausea, and vomiting, and a swollen testis. Oh, geez, this isn't even a case. Went to a freestanding oh. emergency department in Texas with his mother, seen by an internist. This is the issue. In both these cases, that is going to be the issue. In, the, in any case, this freestanding ER in Texas, of which there are a billion of them until most of them went bankrupt, uh, diagnosed mes- mesenteric adenitis. Gave some pain medicines. The patient subsequently went to t- check the children's hospital where the diagnosis was made, but it was too late and lost a testicle. Emergency medicine expert said the internist didn't do anything right when it came to assessing and treating the suspected torsion. So yeah. the case is a, a no-brainer. The, the issue is who's staffing these emergency departments. There's a great shortage of emergency physicians in Texas because there's been this flood of free standings where you can see 1.1 patients an hour and make $300 an hour. The next well, case... But when, go ahead. Problem, problem here, Rick, is it's not what their, training, what their overall training is. Uh, sometimes uh, they just... They, they spent too much time in a hospital looking at critically ill patients. From an outpatient standpoint, there are no-brainers, as you point out. If you've got a young guy with a pain in a testicle, it's a torsion till proven otherwise. No, it's, and a, it's I, mesenteric adenitis. It's me, or mesenteric Either adenitis. One. Yeah, whichever one you want. But the bottom line is, uh, what does that mean? If this is a doctor who's an internist, would it be better that there be a PA who's gone to our course? Would well, that listen, be better? That's the whole issue here. When you go into a freestanding emergency department, and in Texas, the signage is very, very specific now uh, that it is an emergency department, and they have all of these things about warning you about not going here if you got a cold kind of thing. However, there's the assumption that you're going to see somebody in that department who is capable of dealing with emergencies. Um, and that just wasn't the case uh, with having an internist in a freestanding ER. And the next case is kind of similar, uh, but maybe less, more gray, gray zone. You yeah, do- that's, that's the four-year-old, right? Yeah, this is uh, four-year-old. They, they, again, they do a freestanding a- in Texas, you know, fever, uh, a rapid heartbeat, abnormal breathing, was alert, had uh, vomiting, diarrhea, past 24 hours, was deaf, and had a cochlear implant, <laughs> which, <laughs> and, which means they've got a foreign body sitting between their brain in some way and, and the outside world. Diagnosis, ear infection, dehydration, nonspecific viral syndrome, uh, uh, kid was given prescription for antibiotics. Uh, the child had abnormal white blood count and platelet counts, which wouldn't be unexpected, even in an ear infection. Uh, the father took her home, and five hours later, the child is cold, blue, vomited, went to the hospital, and arrested. Um, and was see, patient was seen by a uh, third year resident in the emergency department, and they did eventually diagnose the meningitis in this child. But the 
the question is when you see some uh, a child who is ill who has a foreign body implanted that goes into their brain that's probably a different kind of kid wouldn't you say rick i mean yeah. how many cochlear implants would you see a week when you were practicing yeah this is a really unfortunate case because number one meningitis in kids now is a rarity is it a rarity yes uh, in our when we were younger physicians meningitis was not a rarity we did no. spinal taps all the time we were facile at doing spinal taps i truly wonder how many pediatric spinal taps the current batch of residents do in any case, the issue here was the patient was seen by a third-year emergency medicine resident. And yeah. it, it is analogous a little bit to the prior case. When a person presents to an emergency department, a freestanding emergency department, or otherwise, this is not a training institution where there are faculty supervising residents. This guy was re working alone, and um, yes, he's licensed. And in, ca in Texas, he had the criteria to work as an independent physician. However, right. these people said the lawsuit not only claimed the physician was negligent, but there, but there was failure of the facility to staff with appropriate qualified and experienced physicians. So the group was obviously sued as well. Uh, interestingly enough, this case, certainly pediatric meningitis in an immunized, you know, American child is uncommon. Uh, the one of the experts on this case was a guy by the name of Ken Corey. Right. Ken, Ken works at Cedar Sinai. is a friend of a is a mutual friend of another emergency physician that we know, whose granddaughter had meningitis about a year ago. This was a perfectly well immunized child who developed meningitis. Now, in this case, the diagnosis was made on the first visit, but it is spooky that there are cases when we think everybody's immunized of meningitis, and it's a rare disease. I dare say this resident probably never saw a case of pediatric meningitis. Bacterial was, meningitis, correct. Exactly, and it's, um, it's still out there. It is still out there, and obviously the consequences are serious. The uh, little girl that I'm aware of out here in Los Angeles has substantial neurologic deficits. Uh, she's probably three-ish now or four. And yeah. it's, it's, a, it's still just as that deadly disease as ever, but it's so unusual. But in any case, a couple of points in these cases related to they were really pissed off that this person was a resident. This was not a fully trained doctor working in this place and did not meet their expectations. And on top of it, the diagnosis got missed. Yep. And, and, and understand, would they have been happier if it had been a PA, if it had been a, um, a, a nurse practitioner? I, I mean, what's going to make them happy? You know, I, that's a really good question because we know of rural areas that have emergency departments that are staffed solely by PAs or NPs. Absolutely. The, the supervision is basically via telephone or the like, or maybe a physician lives nearby who can come in if there's an issue. Yes, there's no question about that. Uh, 
and it is a very common phenomenon. There are 1,340-some critical access hospitals, all of which 25 beds or less, and they're doing the best they can with what they yep. have. Right. But exactly. maybe this place wasn't. Well, that that's why we have a, a court system, Rick. We're going to try this one. Hey, listen, can I give you some other quickies? No. No. Are we done? We're done, but you're going to give us a wine, and then we're going to go ahead and give your, get your cases on the very next issue of Risk Management Monthly. Well, I hope so, because I'm stacking up stuff here. I What I, what I want to do is I'm going to bring a smile to your face now. Wine of the month, wine of the month, and all four of them are carried at Costco. My favorite Costco store. announced last year, two years ago of all these relationships they were making with winemakers around the world, summertime will come here in Michigan. It hasn't, (laughs) you know. It's come every year. (laughs) Every year for at least a day or two. But if you're looking for some excellent Sauvignon Blanc, the great light white wine, not the La Crema, which your wife likes, but this is a lighter, little fruitier wine, They've, they've got two new ones, which are worthwhile. And one is Sterling Sauvignon Blanc. It's from California. Uh, it's item number, if you need that, at Costco is 66522 and is terrific. And the, um, the Werau River Sauvignon Blanc, this is a new one they've got now in from Marlboro, uh, the Marlboro area of New Zealand. Uh, item number 295008. These are reasonably priced. And I'll, I'll tell you right now, the Sterling Sauvignon Blanc from California first tasted that. And I'd say, well, you know, this is like a $32 a bottle of wine. It's 12 bucks. Uh, and uh, I would I would say this is good stuff, Rick. Uh, so if you're looking for something as the summer's coming up, Try those two wines. Okay, Greg. Thanks so much. I go to. I have a weekly trip to Costco. Whether I need anything or not, I just like to walk around, have a hot dog for a dollar fifty, and all the all the uh, big gulp I can drink, kind of thing. And if your shirt's on inside out, people call you Kirkland, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do. Every, I'm. I'm everything I'm wearing right now. I'm looking down. No, this shirt as it wasn't from there, but everything else was. And normally everything I got on is from Kirkland. But in any case, Greg, thanks so much for being uh, your wonderful self. We're going to do uh, next month on time, early, <laughs> uh, I guarantee. And for uh, those of you out there, thanks for listening, and bye for now. Bye-bye. <laughs> Oh, 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 oh,